All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 43 through 48 this evening. That's Mark 9, 43 through 48. And we are continuing our study of Mark's Gospel. Um, and tonight we're going to spend some time considering the doctrine of hell and eternal punishment. Uh, so yes, I'm, I'm preaching about hell this evening. Um, the text before us speaks about it very clearly. Um, in it, three times, Jesus actually uses the word that we translate to hell. Um, and so we're going to think seriously about it. I, I, I plan on spending the next two weeks in this particular text. Uh, next week, we'll look more closely at the whole passage um, and see why Jesus is speaking about hell. Uh, but tonight, I, I just want us to consider the doctrine of hell found here and in some other places of Scripture. Um, and I want you guys to know uh, that I don't find much pleasure in preaching about this topic. Um, it, it's, a hard, it's a hard doctrine to teach about. Um, I'd rather talk about justification by faith alone and Christ alone. <laughs> um, I'd rather talk about uh, predestination. I'd rather talk about God's unmerited grace. I'd rather talk about the perseverance of saints or something happy like those things. Um, I don't find much pleasure in preaching sermons like the one I'm about to preach, but it is absolutely necessary for me to do so. And it's necessary because the scriptures talk about hell. And I would be an unfit minister of the gospel to shy away from any point that the scriptures speak of. The truth about hell is unpleasant, uh, but the scriptures often confront us with unpleasant truths that we might not want to know, but we need to know. Um, now, a word before we get into this. Um, if at any point during this sermon you begin to think, Pastor Dave is just trying to scare us, um, then know this. Yeah, I am. I'm sincere. I, I, I really am. Uh, and I'm not sorry for it either. Um, you know, like the whole idea of like hellfire and brimstone preaching um, really gets a bad rap in the 21st century because it's biblical. Um, and oftentimes, any, anyone who talks about hell or the wrath of God on a regular basis is condemned as a fundamentalist in our culture. And that's ridiculous. It's in the scriptures. Hell is awful. And God has inspired the scriptures in such a way that when they speak about hell and the eternal wrath of God, it's supposed to make us fear. It's supposed to make us scared. So yes, at certain times I, I am actually trying to scare you. Hell should be something that terrifies us. The thought of going to hell should be the most frightening thing that we can imagine. So again, some of the things in this sermon are designed to scare you, but know this. They're not embellishments from me. I'm not going to do that. That's not faithful to the text. The things I'm going to tell you are not my ideas, and they're not lies. They're what God has to say on this subject. And we all need to know the truth about hell, because apart from understanding it rightly, know this. Unless you understand the doctrine of hell rightly, you will not fear God the way that you should. Because as often as we like to say, you know, fear often means a fear of reverence and awe, and that's true. Many other places in Scripture, fear means fear. It means to be afraid. And if we don't understand hell, we will not fear God the way that we should. We will not tell people the gospel the way that we should. And we will not value and love Christ the way that we should. So we need to know these things. We need to be confronted with and accept the unpleasant but necessary truths found in Scripture. 
Now, with that said, if you would and you're able, as a sign of respect for our God, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we ask that you would have mercy on us this evening as we sit under the ministry of your word. Teach us, please. Help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word to the salvation of our souls. Open our hearts to receive all that your word says, even the unpleasant and difficult things. And please help us to delight in the truth, even if it's a hard truth. Teach us, grow us, and save us. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Let me, let me begin by just stating in my own words what we mean when we're talking about hell. Hell is the unending punishment of the wicked, unrepentant sinner. Hell is the place of God's unmitigated fury and wrath against sin and sinners. Hell is a place, here's a, a technical term in theology, hell is a place of eternal conscious torment and condemnation for the unrepentant. Hell is a place of unimaginable pain, uh, both physical and mental, where the wicked are tortured day and night for all time for their sins. And the testimony of the scriptures verifies these things. Hell is called a place of torment. In Luke chapter 16, verse 28, the end of that verse, it's a parable, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is in hell, and he says, lest they also come to this place of torment. It's a place of torment. Our text tells us in verse 43, it is a place of unquenchable fire. Matthew 25, 30 tells us it is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 41 tells us it is a place of eternal fire. Jesus says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It is a place of outer darkness. Matthew 25, 30 says that as well. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. It is a place of eternal damnation and destruction. Revelation 14, 11, very famous verse about hell says, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Or Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, speaking of the damned. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Eternal destruction. Surely there is no worse thing than this. The words of Scripture in these places, and there are more, but the words of Scripture in these places send a shiver up our spines and make us sick to our stomach. That is, if we are actually listening and thinking about what the Scriptures are saying here. They scare us. There's nothing worse than hell. There is nothing worse or more frightening than the wrath of God. 
As the author of Hebrews said when speaking of God's wrath in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. No truer words have ever been written. It is a dreadful thing to fall under the vengeance and anger of the Lord. And that's why scripture is so clear about the only way of salvation through Jesus Christ. So please hear me and mark it well from the beginning of this sermon. Apart from faith in Christ, apart from trusting in him for salvation, there is no hope to avoid hell. Apart from believing that Jesus died in order to put away the wrath of God from you, apart from believing that he suffered and died in your place under the wrath of God for your sin, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day, apart from faith in him and his gospel, you will be damned. There is no hope to escape the horrors of hell apart from a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way of salvation, for he is the only one who has absorbed the wrath of God in place of sinners. Therefore, he is the only Savior. You must trust in him, or the horrible hell that we are going to speak of this evening is your certain fate. Mark it down. There is no third option. We must get this internalized. There is no third option. There's faith in Christ that results in repentance. Or there is hell. You must choose one because there is no third choice. You must choose one or the other. But hell is truly awful. That much is apparent so far from just a few short verses of Scripture. Hell is so horrible, from what I can understand, Hell is so horrible that apart from the language of Scripture given to us to describe it, we wouldn't be able to articulate anything at all about it. Just as heaven is so glorious that we don't have words to describe it, aside from the very simple language God has given to us, the horrors of hell are just as bad. Just the opposite is true. We don't have words for it. But God has indeed spoken about hell in a way that we can understand in his word, and that brings us to our text this evening. In Mark 9, 43 through 48, three times our Lord uses a word that we translate to hell in English. And some of you are already pretty familiar with this. The Greek word here is Gehenna. That's what we translate to hell, or at least it's one of the words that we translate to hell. It's Gehenna. Now, there's a history behind this word. Um, Gehenna is a Greek version of the Hebrew that means Valley of Hinnom or Valley of the Son of Hinnom. Um, and that valley was a real place, is a real place, I should say. You can still go to Gehenna in Israel. Uh, it, it, it's a real place outside of the city of Jerusalem. And it was a valley of infamy in Jewish culture. You see, back in Old Testament times, during the reigns of kings Ahab and Manasseh in the country of Judah, the Israelites became involved in one of the worst forms of idolatry. They began to worship a false god named Molech. And as part of their worship, they burned their infant children alive to that false god. One of the nicknames for that valley was actually the Valley of the Drum, because they would beat drums so that you could not hear the infants screaming as they were burned alive. This is one of the greatest atrocities in all of the history of Israel. Not only idolatry, which is bad enough, but the murder of infants in the idolatrous practice. And know this, there is a direct parallel between sacrificing your children to the false god Molech and in the 21st century, sacrificing your children to the false god of self. 
this idolatrous and murderous practice was absolutely condemned by God. Absolutely condemned by God through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 7.31 we read, And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. God condemned it. And eventually, this awful practice was stopped by King Josiah, the righteous king who reformed Israel in many ways. He put an end to this practice, and he actually defiled the valley and turned it into the equivalent of a garbage dump for refuse, the carcasses of animals, and even the corpses of criminals. Um, we read about this in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10. And he defiled Josiah, or rather, Josiah had someone do this. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And in verse 14 of that chapter, And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. So the Valley of Slaughter was one of its nicknames. The Valley of Slaughter, the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, was turned into a garbage heap over time. And all of Jerusalem's filth was thrown into it. It was a disgusting place full of just vile, awful stuff. And fire was set to the waste there. And the fire there continually burned because, as you would imagine, each day there were fresh additions to the flames. So the fire never went out. And it didn't take very long for this valley to become a living metaphor for the Jews. Right? A, a living parable for the wrath of God that comes against the wicked when they die. A horrible, disgusting, awful place where the flame never dies. So Gehenna, a real place, came to be spoken of symbolically to refer to a place of eternal fire and punishment. That is, Gehenna became a symbolic way to speak of what we would call hell. So then, Jesus is, is using a symbol, a constantly burning garbage heap. He's using symbolic language to convey the truth of the wrath of God. And the symbol used, again, is a place of constant unending fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That is, where the sinner never burns up to non-existence, but is preserved in the flame. This is an awful picture given to us. This is terrifying language. But it's at this point that some people will say, I've read books denying the doctrine of hell, some people will say, oh, Jesus was just referring to a garbage dump. right? So Jesus' words about hell, then, are just metaphorical. Or symbolic, right? And this may come as a shock to you, but we would say, yes. Don't think I'm a liberal yet. Give me time. We would look at this and say, yes, Jesus was using symbolic language when talking about hell. And it's at this point that, people, that some people will become relieved at the thought that the words about fire and Gehenna are symbolic. But they should not be relieved. They shouldn't be relieved. Jesus' use of metaphorical and symbolic language is actually horrifying. Here's what I mean. Symbols and symbolic language point to something greater than the symbol. For example, I have a tattoo on my leg of a Cairo. Uh, that's an ancient Christian symbol made out of Greek letters that symbolize a statement. And the statement is Christ, the Alpha and Omega. And that statement itself is a symbolic statement. That means Christ, the beginning and end. 
That is, Christ is the king of all, the end-all, be-all of all things, uh, the first and the last, the one to whom all things belong. My tattoo is a symbol that points to symbolic language, that points to the greater reality of who Jesus Christ is. Another example, we use the cross as a symbol in modern times. And what does it symbolize? True religion. The cross symbolizes Christianity. This is why we put crosses outside of our churches. So people know these people worship the living God in there. So the cross as a symbol points to something much higher than just a cross. It points to the truth of Christianity. The cross points to something much higher than just a symbol of a cross. My point is this, symbols and symbolic language point to things much greater than the symbol itself. So then, when Jesus uses the real place, the burning garbage dump, Gehenna, as symbolic of the wrath of God that awaits the, awick, that awaits the wicked, he's actually pointing to something much, much worse than eternal fire. And this makes hell that much more terrifying. Gehenna is just a symbol. Fire is probably just a symbol too, in my opinion. And if that's correct, then hell is much worse than that. Now, I personally, I I thought this week, I racked my brain. I can't think of anything worse than eternal fire. I can't think of any punishment worse than eternal bodily burning in a body that won't burn up. I can't think of anything worse than that. But Jesus' use of symbols here in symbolic language tells me that hell is probably worse than that somehow. Still, some at this point will try to find relief in what I just said and say, oh, so hell isn't literally a place of fire. And to that I would say that hell is at least a place of eternal fire. At least that. But it's probably worse than that. I agree with Dr. R.C. Sproul when he said that he would not be surprised to find out that people who are in hell would gladly be thrown into a lake of fire than suffer what they're suffering now. I would not be surprised to find that out. Brothers and sisters, our minds cannot fathom the horrors of hell. And so God speaks to us in symbols of fire and eternal burning, and that's horrifying enough. But how dreadful must hell be if eternal fire is just a symbol of it? How horrible is the wrath of God against the unrepentant sinner? It is truly a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. At this point, it's probably good to note that in modern evangelical language, it's become quite popular to speak of hell as separation from God. You guys have heard that, right? I used to preach that, actually, years ago. Hell is separation from God, and they'll kind of just put a period on the end of that and not talk much more about hell. And at best, I think that well-meaning Christians are trying to convey the truth that an eternal existence without God is horrible. An eternal existence apart from the blessing of God is an awful thing. And they're also speaking the language of Paul and Jesus in a few places. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, I read it to you earlier, says they, referring to the damned, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Or Jesus says in Matthew 25.41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire. Depart from me, 
Get away from my presence. Get out of my face. So putting the best, most charitable understanding we can on the phrase, hell is separation from God, we see that some of our brothers and sisters aren't completely wrong. Right? But I think that at best, that is a half-truth. At best, that's a half-truth. And at worst, it is a way to soft-pedal the doctrine of hell. At worst, it's a way to try to defang hell. It's just separation from God. And I say it soft-pedals the doctrine of hell because the unrepentant sinner doesn't want to spend eternity with God anyway. They don't. The impenitent sinner doesn't want anything to do with God. They just don't want to suffer. The unbeliever rejects God and doesn't want anything to do with him. So telling the unbeliever that hell is just separation from God takes the sting and terror out of what the rest of Scripture speaks about hell. Now with that said, obviously we agree with Paul and Jesus that in a sense the wicked are cast away from the presence of God. Follow me on here. You've got to think with me through this. We agree that in a sense, the wicked are cast away from the presence of God. But we mean that as they did in a qualified way. Nothing in the universe is absolutely separated from God. Nothing. Here's what I mean. God is omnipresent. Right? He's everywhere. He is everywhere and reigning over everything at all times. There is nowhere that God is not present in some way. So then, since God is omnipresent, if there was, hypothetically, a place that was completely, absolutely separated from God, then that place could not exist because God is omnipresent. If it exists, God's there. So nothing is absolutely out of the presence of God. But since the scriptures are clear, again, that God is everywhere at once, that means that, in a sense, God is also present in hell. God is reigning over hell. I talked to Pastor Stephen about this. Some people get this false picture that the devil reigns over hell. That's blasphemy. Hell was prepared for Satan, and he will be cast there someday. God reigns over hell. Hell is God's hell. But what I'm getting at here is that we have to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture with these phrases about being away from the presence of God. So what I mean is we have to hold God's omnipresence in tandem with statements in Scripture that tell us that the unrepentant sinner are cast away from his presence. So then, when Scripture speaks about the wicked being separated from God or cast away from his presence, it's speaking in a qualified way, not absolutely. Here's a good way of thinking about it. The unrepentant sinner... The unbeliever is cast away from the presence of God's blessing. That is, the unbeliever is cast away from the presence of God that we would all love to bask in. The presence of his blessing. The presence of his, to speak humanly, his smile. A smile of grace and kindness and blessing and acceptance. The unbeliever is cast away from what we might call the happy presence of God. But the wicked are nevertheless, nevertheless in his presence in hell. God is very much present in hell. But he is present in every way that you hope to never meet him. 
He is present in every way that terrifies the sinner, in every way that we would hope we would never see. He is fully present in all of his wrath, in all of his fierce hatred against sin and sinners. He's present in his anger, present in his vengeance, present in his uncompromising holiness, present in his unyielding justice. He is present in hell, pouring out his wrath against the ungodly. And that's what makes hell so horrifying. It is the place of the hatred and wrath of God meted out by God himself, in, immediately, by God. Again, it is a terrible thing to fall into his hands. But moving on to a very brief point that I'm sure most of you here already understand instinctively, but needs to be said. Hell is a place. Hell is a place. There are some who very foolishly and unbiblically assert that hell is not a real place, but instead is a state of mind. You ever heard that? Right, hell is on earth. That's stupid. It's blasphemous. They'll falsely say that, again, hell is on earth, that hell is the, uh, the things that you suffer here and nothing more. And they view hell as a concept more than anything else. But quite clearly in Scripture, and I say this so that you have something to say back to such a person, hell is spoken of in localized language in the Bible. That is the language of location. It is a place that sinners are cast into. You don't get cast into a concept. You get cast into a place. Hell is a place that sinners depart into. What does it mean to depart? To go from one place to another place. Hell is a place where sinners are imprisoned, Peter says in 2 Peter, and held under wrath. Now, you are not a prisoner to a concept, but you are a prisoner in a place. That is how prisons work. Now, where is hell? I have no idea. I have no idea. The Bible does not tell us the exact location of hell. And it's probably because of that that some try to deny its existence as an actual place. But you'd have to do the same thing for heaven. And few people are willing to do that, even though God doesn't give us the zip code for his dwelling place either. But know this, hell is a real place. It is an actual location, and it's a place where the damned are sent after judgment to be justly punished by God. I think it's good for us to now consider two questions here. Who goes to that place then? Who goes to hell? And why do they go there? And I know you're thinking that's really a softball question, but there's something in the answer that I want you to really consider. So bear with me. Who goes to hell and why do they go there? The answer is very simple. Sinners go to hell. Unrepentant sinners go to hell. Those who have never turned away from their sin and turned toward the Lord Jesus Christ in faith are the ones who go to hell. Those who never had a living faith in Christ, but had a temporary faith in Christ and did not persevere to the end are the ones who go to hell. Those who have not had their sins removed by the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus. Those who have no atonement in Christ, no interest in Christ. Those who die in their sins. Those who die apart from the Savior. The unrepentant and unbelieving are the ones who make up hell's population. And why do they go there? They go to hell because of their sins. They go to hell for their vanity, their pride, 
their fornication, idolatry, blasphemy, their Sabbath breaking. They go to hell for not respecting God. They go to hell for theft, murder, hatred, greed, lust, and self-righteousness. They go there because they have broken the law of God. Because they've lived as if God was insignificant. Because they've lived as if there was no law. That's why they're called lawless ones. They go to hell because, as Paul says in Romans 1, they did not seek after God. Even though they knew God. And knew they should worship Him. And honor Him. Sinners go to hell for their sins. But why? Why? Why do sinners go to hell for their sin? Because God is holy. And God is just. And God is good. You could actually summarize it. Sinners go to hell because God is good. Hell exists because God is good. It is because of who God is combined with what the sinner has done against him in his sinning, that the unrepentant sinner must go to hell. It's because of who God is and the atrocity of sin against God that the sinner must go to hell. Here's what I mean. God is the infinitely holy one, the perfect hater of sin. God is the infinitely righteous one, the infinitely good one who has never wronged any of his creatures. He is the creator who has given life to everything and sustains every single person, including the sinner. He is the God, the infinitely innocent one, who has never done wrong and does not in any way deserve to be wronged. Do you ever think of God as innocent? More innocent than your children. More innocent than a newborn is God. Pure undefiled, innocent, who does not deserve to be wronged. He is the infinitely gracious one who deals kindly with all of his creation. He is the infinitely wise one who has never steered anyone in the wrong direction nor has ever given an arbitrary commandment. He is the infinite lawgiver whose ways are righteousness and man in his sin, has looked God in the face and said, you are beneath me. You are not good. I will not honor you. I will not obey you. I will not believe in you. I will not acknowledge you. I will not serve you. Though you have given me everything, even the breath I'm breathing to blaspheme your holy name, I will give you nothing because you are nothing to me. And man spits in the face of God in his sin. And that is the most heinous thing that a man or a woman or a child can do. And so, in his perfect justice, God must give a punishment fitting the crime. Because he's good. And in his wisdom... And in line with his just and holy character, God has determined that such a crime, sin, merits hell. Because of the wickedness of sin and the holiness of God, the unrepentant sinner must, of necessity, be damned. 
Now we come to a final piece of our doctrine of hell. And I've saved it for last because it is quite possibly the most terrifying aspect of hell. Hell is eternal. Oh, may God help us to see this. And I mean that. I'm not over-exaggerating. May God help us to see that hell is eternal. It doesn't end. There are no breaks in the punishment. There are no off days. There's no hope of ending. There is no hope at all. Jesus himself in our text here in Mark says that in hell, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You guys remember the symbol of the trash heap, Gehenna. There was fire and maggots, worms there all the time. And why? An endless flow of maggots and fire because there was a constant stream of refuse pouring into the valley. Jesus' point in using the language of the worm not dying and the fire being unquenched points to the reality that the damned in their suffering will never be consumed. Their worm will forever feast on their flesh because their flesh will never yield entirely to the flame. And the fire will never go out because their body will serve as constant fuel for the burning. Jesus is telling us here that hell is eternal. In addition to all the places of scripture that explicitly state the eternality of hell, that's the point of Jesus' figure of speech, actually quoting from Isaiah 66. It's a place where the damned suffer forever. Hell is a place where once you are condemned to that place, once you are consigned to that place, you never get out. This is the most heartbreaking and horrifying aspect of hell. That it doesn't end. And we have a hard time comprehending eternity. I'm, I'm convinced of that. None of us fully comprehend eternity. In our finite human minds, we cannot comprehend the reality of forever. Everything in our lives has an ending, doesn't it? Everything. Everything has an end. Things come and go. Things change. People die. We are relegated to time. But eternity is timeless. Time does not matter in eternity because it doesn't end. And hell is a place of timeless and never-ending torment for the wicked. Now, we can endure nearly anything if we know when it's going to end, can't we? Just tell me when it's going to be over and I can, I can get through it. But for the damned, it will never end. Hell is a hopeless place. Let me illustrate this for you in a couple of ways. I think I stole this from Puritan. I don't remember who it was. If the earth and everything in it were turned into sand, and each year a bird picked one grain of sand and carried it off the planet, it would take an unimaginably long time for the bird to complete the job, wouldn't it? But that is not even a drop in the ocean of eternity. It's the only the beginning. Forever. A preacher once said that above the gates of hell there is a sign that reads, and they shall perish. And after the first year, the damned sinner looks up and reads, and they shall perish. 
And after the first 10 years, the damned reads, and they shall perish. And after the first 100 years, it reads, they shall perish. And after the first 10,000 years, it still reads, and they shall perish, for they shall always be perishing. If this were not in the Bible, if God himself had not spoken this to us, I would not and could not believe it to be true. I have friends that are here. And so many of you do as well. This is horrifying. This is too terrible to imagine, but it is the truth. And God has spoken. And all of our wishing it was different is actually a slight against God's holy character. And all of our cavils and foolish arguments against it change nothing. God has spoken and it is what it is. Truly, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a terrible thing to be condemned to hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In conclusion, know this. Hell is real and it is horrible. Just as with heaven, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We can equally say, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, in light of this doctrine, there are three things that I want you to take with you. The first is this, Christian, don't ever diminish this doctrine. Don't ever try to minimize this doctrine. It is tempting to do so. In your own sinful heart, it's tempting to do so. And on the street, when talking to people about the gospel, it is tempting to minimize this doctrine. But know this, to do so diminishes the work of Christ's suffering. Don't make light of this doctrine lest you make light of the cross. It's the wrath of God that we have been talking about this evening that Jesus suffered in your place so that you could be spared. Though he did it in a finite amount of time on his cross, nevertheless, by a miracle of God, he suffered the fullness of God's wrath for his people. And to undermine the horrors of hell is to belittle the cross of Christ. That Christ suffered the wrath of God, that he suffered hell on the cross for us, is something we hold dear. As we confessed earlier in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. Not that Jesus literally went to hell after his death on the cross. In fact, he said, Father, into your hands I, I commend my spirit. But he descended into hell as an explanation of his crucifixion and death. That Jesus descended into the fullness of the wrath of God on the cross. So we confess that Jesus suffered what we deserved. That he is the propitiation for our sin. As Paul says in Romans 3. Jesus suffered the horrors of what we've seen in the word this evening. He was punished in our place as if he were a condemned sinner. Do not undermine the horror of hell. I'll say it again, don't do it because to do so makes little of Christ's sacrifice for us. And we dare not do that. For his sacrifice was far too costly 
for us to ever belittle it in any way. Second, Christian, let the truth about hell motivate you to evangelize. May God help us. Let it push you to go out from this place and tell people about the reality of hell and their sin and their need for a Savior in Jesus Christ. I love you enough just to keep it real for a minute. You need to know this and mark it well. Your family, your friends, your co-workers, the ones that you love dearly but do not know Christ, are going to hell. I don't say that glibly. I'm being as sincere as I can. Unless they repent and believe the gospel, they will perish and suffer everything that you've heard of this evening. And as Paul says in Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now I know that not all of you have been called into gospel ministry as an elder of the church. I'm not trying to blur those distinctions. But nevertheless, all of us have a duty, both to God and neighbor, to warn our neighbors. To seriously, somberly, soberly warn others of the wrath that awaits them if they die without Christ. We must tell them. And know this, it is not a mean thing to tell them. In fact, it is a cruel thing to withhold the truth from them. So may God help us all to take seriously the call to declare Christ to the people around us because they will go to hell without Him. Hell is real and people are really going there. As Charles Spurgeon said very famously, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Oh, Christian, make it so. If, God forbid, you ever get the news that one of your friends who did not know Christ has died. Make it so that you can lay your head down on your pillow that evening and say, I told them, and they would not. Make sure you can say that. And lastly, on a brighter note, Christian, let this doctrine motivate you to love Christ. Let this doctrine motivate you to love Christ more deeply because he has saved you from this. This is what he's done. He saved us from these horrors. By his cross, by his death and resurrection, he has purchased eternal life for us. He has suffered the wrath of God in our place. He has taken the punishment due to us so that we might be spared from hell. Oh, Christian, as you consider hell, consider the Savior who has spared you from it by His blood and love Him. As much as you fear hell, love Him more for He saved you from it. Praise be to Him.
You deserve hell. I deserve hell. We have earned it by our sins, but Christ has saved us from it. And know this, if there's an unbeliever among us or a false professor among us, he will save you from it too. If you will come to him in faith, he will save you. He is the Savior. And he delights to save sinners. May God etch these truths on our hearts. May God grant to us to understand the horrors of hell. May God grant to us greater love for our neighbor. And may God grant to us greater love for the Savior who has saved us from such an awful fate. Praise be to his name. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that cuts us deeply and and causes us to fear your wrath. But Lord, we thank you that you have given us Christ to whom we flee from the wrath to come. Jesus, as Paul says, who saves us from the wrath to come. We thank you that we have not been destined for wrath, but for salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. God, we ask that you would help us to take this doctrine seriously and everything that comes along with it. But Lord, help those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are following Christ, who have been united to him by faith. Help us to be able to say confidently, I know I'm not going there because of Christ alone. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.